Right now, though, we are taking a look at the cruise ship industry. And as you know, it has been hit hard by the pandemic. And as Republican from Alaska, Congressman Don Young has written a piece about this. He is currently serving in the U.S. House of Representatives, talking about the cruise ship industry. And in this piece written by Congressman Don Young, he says COVID-19 has exposed critical critical vulnerabilities in Alaska's economy and goes on to say that this is also serving as a reminder that in the future, we cannot allow such a vital portion of our economy to be held hostage by a foreign country, in this case, Canada. He's talking about making a permanent change so that cruise ships would not have to stop in Canadian ports. He goes on to say in this piece, to add insult to injury, Canada's power to cancel Alaska's 2021 cruise season was only possible because of the U.S. law known as the Passenger Vessels Services Act. In short, the PVSA, enacted in 1886, does not allow foreign-flagged passenger vessels to make consecutive U.S. ports stops without stopping in a foreign port in between. So what does this mean for the future of the cruise industry industry here in Canada? Joining me now is Robert Lewis Manning, the CEO of the BC Chamber of Shipping. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What are your thoughts about what Congressman Don Young has penned, what he is saying about the industry? Well, I think uh, Congressman Young's uh, comments in the Vancouver Sun this morning are not new ones. Um, he said them before, and uh, I don't think anyone would be surprised to think that uh, American legislatures or legislators are going to look out for um, American tourism uh, businesses. So I'm not not terribly surprised by the messages in that op-ed this morning. When he talks about the fact that he has introduced something called the Tribal Tourism Sovereignty Act, saying that uh, he's done so to make it so once the Alaska Tourism Restoration Act expires, uh, they'll still be able to go ahead or to try and have an industry where the foreign stop is not required. Is that a concern, though, that if that is approved, that could perhaps cut down on the number of cruise ships that do stop on BC's West Coast? Yeah, it's absolutely a concern, Jill, and uh, and we've seen it over the last eighteen months of the pandemic when it wasn't right to have cruise ships calling into Canada. Uh, quite frankly, because our own um, priorities uh, for uh, the health of Canadians was the priority. But um, yeah, absolutely. If this was a, a permanent piece of legislation, um, then I think we would be very concerned about the potential for cruise ships to bypass key tourist ports like Vancouver, Victoria, Nanaimo, Port Alberni, Prince Rupert. These are places all that have uh, been very successful at attracting uh, largely American and international uh, tourists uh, to their city. So, yeah, we're concerned. Um, Balancing that concern, though, is the fact that we've got some really amazing places for cruise ships to call. Um, And that can't and that can't be emphasized enough. Uh, those those itineraries that have been, you know, classic stops in in Vancouver and especially Victoria, um, offer a lot for those uh, cruise ship passengers. And and it's all about making sure that we're we're marketing that value um, and making sure we're ready for it uh, for next season. 
Right. Because looking at also at the the act that he has introduced, the Tribal Tourism Sovereignty Act, uh, he goes on to talk a bit or explain a little bit more about that, saying that his proposal would mean the large foreign flagged passenger vessels that call on ports or places in the U.S. that are owned by tribes or Alaska Native corporations would be compliant. So it's not as though we're talking about all cruise ships. We're talking about certain ones, isn't it? It appears that way, and I, I can't speculate what the numbers would be. Uh, but it does appear that there is an, a nexus to what I would say are both um, Alaskan um, Alaskan uh, tourist operators and also uh, tribal interests in the United States. And when you talk about the marketing of the ports, either the ones that you mentioned, Vancouver, Victoria, as we head up the the BC coast, we do still obviously see cruise ships marketing that cruise ship cruises to Alaska that start and end in Vancouver. So is it making the point or is it then making sure that cruise ship companies see the value in that and, and when the ports open up again, that they still do want to offer that product? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's a team effort that that needs to that is happening and needs to be accelerated um, in the next couple of months. So uh, we know that our ports are working hard um, for procedures to make it safe for cruise ships to return. Uh, we know that at a federal level, there are working groups uh, working between departments and also with the provincial counterparts uh, in the health authorities uh, to ensure that the protocols are in place. Um, and, and we know that tourism operators across the hospitality industry are, are working hard at that. And I think once we're past the federal election, uh, we're also going to need to have those political signals um, resent. And of course, um, the Minister of Transport before the election was called actually announced that the lifting of the prohibition would happen in November. So that was a positive signal and it's going to need to be reiterated um, as soon as possible. Uh, do you have any concerns with the fourth wave and with the numbers that we're seeing that there's a potential that won't be lifted in November? Uh, I think I think we're all concerned. All Canadians are concerned about uh, the potential um, increasing numbers. Uh, but to the same extent, I think um, as a society, we're getting much better at managing it. So I think the, the long-term prosper, uh, prospects into 2022 are quite good and uh, with uh, good planning and good coordination and a bit of marketing, uh, we fully expect cruise ships to be calling in Canadian ports next year. Does it show us, or have we learned perhaps from this, not to underestimate Alaskan representatives or, or U.S. politicians when it comes to doing something like this? In when this was first even suggested, uh, our own premier was saying he didn't think it would happen. When it did happen, was saying, "Oh, it'll be temporary. We need not worry about this." Should have we underestimated the potential here for this becoming a permanent change? I think. You know, collectively, there was an underestimation of um, protection of business, and you know it, it it's it's been a good lesson uh, for our tourism industry. And I think we have to look at all of Canada's international trade in the same light. If you're not trying to be as competitive as possible, um, then you run the risk of losing business. So, um, yeah, I think it's a great lesson. Uh, one, I hope that we don't have to learn twice. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, just wanted to ask you as well, in general, not not specific to cruise ships, but are there still concerns as far as shipping items, shortages of items? Are we getting back on track in that regard, or are we still having some some difficulties there? 
Well, this is a global challenge, uh, and I would say at the moment um, it, it hasn't improved significantly. The the impacts on the global supply chain are significant, and we've had our own challenges in the North American market, um, such as the uh, fires in the interior of BC, which caused the entire supply chain to slow down to some degree. Um, and it's going to be months probably into 2022 until we see some relief. And, uh, and I think we'll, we'll see it on the, on the, sh- on the shelves of, of stores in Canada. And it's all about inventory, and it's, it's very challenging for a lot of uh, producers, manufacturers, and retailers to make sure that they've got the supplies that they need. I keep seeing people, not that this would be, I, I think, the number one priority for people, but I do keep seeing uh, people suggesting that if you're purchasing for Christmas or other holidays to do it early because of the issues with supply. Yeah, I, I, I tell that to all my friends. <laughs> so that is yeah. something that, something that should... be a last week shopper. Right. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, Robert Lewis Manning, we'll leave it there for today. I'm sure we will talk to you again soon, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Jill. Thanks for being with us today. As you heard, yesterday afternoon, there was an announcement that all healthcare workers in BC must be immunized against COVID-19 to work in a healthcare facility in any part of the province. So this is an expansion of the previous order that specified and really looked at long-term care facilities. This new measure, which was announced by Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, will come into effect on October 26th, and it will apply to anyone working in acute and community care along with people who work in home care. It will then be a requirement for all workers, physicians, contractors and volunteers and Dr. Henry adding this will be a condition of employment and she said the ultimate end for those who choose not to get vaccinated who work in health care will be leave without Hey, let's bring on Amon Graywall, BC Nurses Union Vice President. Amon, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. What is the position of the union when it comes to this mandatory vaccination order? Well, we support vaccination for everyone. The majority of our members are already vaccinated. However, our job as a union is to stand up for those who can't get it for whatever reason, be it uh, medical reasons, religious exemptions, or uh, personal choice. Um, And uh, our health care system is critically short. The government needs to be very careful as we cannot lose a single nurse from the health care system in this time of severe crisis. When we're already in this crisis, where are the government going to get other nurses to replace these nurses when they aren't able to do that already? So when you talk about the majority of nurses being vaccinated then, of of, uh, nurses unions with 48,000 members, how many would you say aren't vaccinated? Well, we are hearing that 80% of our nurses are vaccinated, so that's 20% that uh, may not be vaccinated. And and when you talk about the reasons, be it medical, religious, or personal choice, uh, I would imagine the public will hear that and think, well, if it's your personal choice not to get vaccinated, why should you be able to work in a healthcare facility and potentially put people at risk? Yes, but it's a human right to make your own choice. Uh, We still stand by that uh, 
everyone should be vaccinated. And we strongly encourage everyone to get educated and uh, get the vaccine. But there will be some that don't. What would be the reason then somebody working in a healthcare facility in a medical facility that would choose that is able to get this vaccine that we've all been encouraged to get? What would be the reasoning for someone's personal choice that they, they choose not to? What we've been hearing is um, from these educated people that uh, they just don't have enough science for their personal choice. Uh, okay. And, and if somebody takes that, that point then, then again, I, w- I would put the question out, then do you have the right to work with patients, to work with people who are sick and potentially put them at risk? What we would encourage the government then to do is put in all precautionary measures, and that could also include redeployment to non-clinical areas. So they could do contact tracing, they could go into clinical areas where there is research or um, other settings where they're not in contact with the public. Um, As long as, you know, we are using proper PPE and also doing rapid testing, we should be able to support them. And uh, just back at the start of the pandemic, Nurses were allowed to cross the border. They were allowed to come back from vacation and go right to work. They were actually told they weren't allowed to isolate at home and quarantine for the 14 days like the general public. And at that time, we didn't have the proper PPE. Nobody was vaccinated. And these nurses were being told to come to work. And now we have the PPE. The public is vaccinated, their co-workers are vaccinated, and as long as they're wearing the proper PPE and doing the rapid testing, we have some safety measures in place there. Uh, when you talk about the numbers, though, if, if 80% of the members are vaccinated and 20% aren't, and you're talking about uh, the fact that you don't want to see a scenario where any nurse is removed from a workplace or, or any nurse is displaced because of that, if 20% are relocated, doesn't that leave us with the same problem that we're going to have vacancies and we're going to have places that are even more short of nurses? Correct, and that's why we were saying that uh, they should not be removed from the healthcare system. We are already short, and you know we've known about uh, there going to be a shortage of nurses decades ago. We knew this was coming, and uh, we did not know this pandemic was going to hit us. And so now we are in a situation where. The planning was not in place to make sure that we had enough nurses in the system. You know, by 2029, we're going to need close to 24,000 nurses. And you think 2029, well, that's only eight years away. And it takes four years for a nurse to go through a nursing program. And so that's only two groups of nurses, two sets of nurses that will go through the schools that we have. And so we need to increase the seats that are there for 
us to churn out enough nurses, and we still won't hit that mark. Right, which which is another issue that's that's facing the healthcare system. And you're right; we have been talking about a nurses nurses shortage for for several years. What kind of a message, though, do you think it sends when we have all been encouraged and told that the right thing to do is, if you can, is to get this vaccination? That the only way we are going to get out of this pandemic and get things to be anything close to back to normal is to do what is right for the greater good to get this vaccination. What kind of a message? do you think it sends when 20% of nurses are not doing that? Um, yeah, that is a good question. And um, it just comes down to personal choice. I, uh, you know, in the community, there are people who still have not. There is the hesitancy. And we just encourage them to get the education and read as much as possible learn as much as possible, get educated, and uh, get vaccinated. We are encouraging and supporting people to get vaccinated. So this is going to come into place, though. I, I mean, I can't see Dr. Henry changing this or backing down on this. So she is saying that come October 26th, to work in acute care, to work in community care, anybody that works in the system will need to be vaccinated. So what do you anticipate happening come October 26th? Well, we would like to see what their plan is. What do they, the government, have as their plan because on top of you know the crisis that they have already with the healthcare system being short staffed are they willing to have an even increased shortage if they are mandating that nurses then are put on a unpaid leave how are they going to support our healthcare system when it's already on a crisis point that's a great question to pose to a government. It absolutely is, because it almost seems like it's it's a bit of a standoff. On the one hand, the government is saying everybody in healthcare needs to be vaccinated by October 26th, but the BCNU is saying, well, what if we don't, what are you going to do? Because there's no one to do our jobs. Yeah. And it's already happening. The nurses are working so short. They're burning out. They've been dealing with the opioid crisis on top of that, we had the COVID pandemic that's still ongoing. We've had the heat dome and heat waves, and we've had the wildfires. Nurses have been giving their all, and they have not had any break from this. For over 18-plus months, they have been going nonstop. And they have been feeling unappreciated, disrespected. Um, You know, we had anti-vaxxers that were protesting outside of a hospital, several hospitals, where they are going in there, risk to themselves as well, and to see that and having patients there that whose lives they are trying to save and for those patients as well in there that we're seeing that who are suffering you know it's taking a hard toll on our nurses they're at their breaking point 
and we need to support our nurses. I, I appreciate that, and, and I support nurses 100%. I think nurses are, anytime I've, I've had dealings in the healthcare system, not on a work level, on a personal level, uh, one recently, uh, they've been amazing. And I hear stories from people like that all the time. So I hope nurses know that they are supported by the, ma- the vast majority of British Columbians, and absolutely people do appreciate what they're doing. But I think where, where some of the disconnect might come in is, is you're right. So in this 18 months... Nurses have seen people being admitted to hospital with this virus. Nurses have seen people die horrific deaths from this virus. So people might wonder, why wouldn't you want to be vaccinated to protect yourself against it? And, you know, it's the same as any other member of the public that we ask the same question, why? And it comes down to that, you know, personal choice. And it may just be that, they are trying to get the information, but that information that they're looking for is just not there right now. I have had nurses contact me who say that they are trying to get pregnant and they will not take the vaccine because they're not sure what the impact of that will be on the fetus if they were to uh, take the vaccine. And so they have legitimate questions and concerns, And we have to support that. Uh, They are educated. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it does become a human rights concern if you are forcing, mandating somebody to take a vaccine. And um, unfortunately, you know, some are going that route. And we, as a union, are encouraging everyone to get vaccinated that is our stance but if they are not getting vaccinated we will support them Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We're going to talk a little bit more about what things look like. As you know, as of yesterday in BC, you needed your vaccine certificate to access access places like gyms, fitness centers, restaurants inside and outside, other places like theaters, movie theaters, concerts, ticketed events. And for the most part, we got a few calls on the show to the buzz line with people saying they had done that and it had been very very smooth. You may have seen the footage of the gentleman who had his QR code put on a t-shirt so he would have it with him when he wore the t-shirt. So that was what we were hearing from people who had happily gone along and taken part in the certificate. But what about the millions of Canadians who are not vaccinated for various reasons? What does the long term look like for them? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, to talk a bit more about about this. Thank you so much for being with us. And it's great to be with you, Jill. Thank you. Uh, We've been focusing so much on what it looks like to have the pass, the software that's needed to access the places where it's now required. But I'm glad that you're able to join us. What are your thoughts on the millions of people that, whether it's for medical reasons or maybe they had a bad reaction to the first shot and are holding off on the second or for religious reasons, are not being vaccinated? 
Ah, okay. So, so you you left out the group that's got their heels dug in. <laughs> we were getting <laughs> so, to them. <laughs> that's that's another group. So, you know, I'm sure that when it comes to uh, people who have not been able to get the vaccination for justifiable reasons, uh, we certainly want that that to be a possibility for them. And I know, at least in in the Ontario context there is some possibility for people to kind of justify why they're not able to get the vax. Uh, and I assume if that reason is justifiable, then you would be able to get a code uh, of some sort that would let you in. Um, I, I think the group that will have the, the biggest challenge from this is, is the group that really do not have a justification for not getting the vaccine. They are suddenly going to find themselves in a very uh, uncomfortable, difficult position. Um, I, I've used the term that not everybody likes, but second-class citizen. You know, to some extent, we would be entering a phase where we've said, "Hey, those people who are playing along and and are are doing what we think we need to do to get out of this uh, situation, they will have certain privileges. Those people who are not." will have lesser privileges. Uh, and it, it's kind of, you know, at some level amazing that, that we're doing this at this level and that so many of us believe it is the right thing to do. I don't think it's where any of us wanted to be, but it might be the right place to be at this point in time. And even in BC, it was quite a change from what was previously previously said from our provincial health officer uh, a few months ago, saying she didn't want to go that route because of that exact thing, that it creates inequities, it cuts people out of places, but then saying she felt that it was justified that we need to do this because uh, not seeing another way to get out of this pandemic. Yeah, I, I mean, from a psychological perspective, I think it's the right thing to do. and And that's largely because... We've gotten past the point where we're going to resolve the differences, uh, you know, this, this, this gap that we see just through sort of rational argument. Um, it really is an emotional position for a lot of the anti-vaxxers. They, they, they feel fears of, of collusion. They feel fears of the vaccine itself. Um, we've done everything we can to, to demonstrate that those fears are not justified, that they're irrational. Uh, and I, and I quoted a little bit to that point where, you know, our dad used to say, that's it, I'm done arguing, enough is enough, it's my house, here's the rules, deal with them. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of feel like that's what the, the uh, vaccine passport is. It's, it's the 80-85% saying, listen, we need to get on the other side of this. We believe the vaccine is the only way. Um, enough is enough, like get the vaccine or, or live in a, a life that is not nearly as enjoyable. Um, so, so it's powerful because it'll talk to the emotional aspect, the emotional part of those people who are, are not getting the vaccine. They're, they're not doing it for emotional reasons now, but now we're going to give them a good reason to do it for emotional reasons. If they want those social connections, they want those events, then the vaccine is the way for them to, to get what they will, what they will feel they need. What do you think it does then? Because we've also been seeing people who have lost friendships over mm-hmm. this that have seen families uh, kind of split apart when there's disagreements on this. Yeah, uh, my, my family is one of them, by the way. I'm, I'm living it now, I'm so so I, I know it well, and it's, and it's very hard. So, I, you know, I kind of have, there's two things we can talk about there. A, it is hard on that anti-vax person because they are losing some of their social connections and those social connections are really important to our mental health. And and so they are really being, you know, reduced to some extent socially to those people who share the same belief system that they believe. And that, that will be a challenge to their mental health. It it will be difficult for them. There's, there's no doubt to that. Um, You know, on another level, when uh, one piece of advice I'm giving is that if it is a family member and if you can be in the same room without arguing with that person, and not all of us can, 
a very powerful and effective strategy is something we call active listening. Um, and what that means is putting aside your perspective, putting aside your beliefs and, and sitting with somebody and just saying, I would really like to understand why you feel the way you do and, and, and um, you know, just get a sense of how you came to where you are. And if you're willing to listen as non-judgmentally as possible, it can be very difficult. But just with that perspective in mind that I really want to give this person a chance to, to tell me why they believe what they believe, even if at the, at the end of that, you know, you are no more swayed, uh, at least you've showed them that you care enough to listen and, and consider their perspective. Uh, and so you certainly don't have to agree on it. In fact, after the fact, you may be in a good position to be able to say, okay, I've listened to your perspective. Can I, can I give you mine um, and have you listened to that? But, but that idea of, of holding off any debate, of, of, of only allowing one person to express their view while the other person very carefully listens, it's a powerful way for us to show each other we care, even in situations where we don't agree. And then I guess what's different here is that it's not just having a conversation with a family member or a close friend and then you agree to disagree and move on. One of you then maybe is going out to a restaurant to eat and says goodbye to the other because the other is no longer allowed to be there. Yeah, it's a really amazing place to be. You know, I couldn't imagine two years ago if you told me we could be in this situation that we would be here. But yeah, it's essentially justified classism um, of a sort, um, where some people are getting access to things and, and others aren't. Uh, and it really does come down to the justification, and it comes down to, you know, things like where people say, well, you know, if you thought you had the right to drink and drive any time you wanted, that for whatever reason you thought it was oppressive for your government or the people you're with to tell you you can't drink or drive, well, we might choose to treat you a little bit differently because you're endangering a lot of us and, and you're part of a, a democracy where the democracy has come to this position as the right position. And as a citizen of that uh, democracy, we expect you to, to kind of play along with with the rest of us. And if you just completely refuse to do that, um, despite all the data to the to the contrary, then this is the kind of measure we get to because we need them to do it. Um, that's the important part. We need these people, right? We need them on side. And and so the the other thing I've been saying with that in mind is this is no time for gloating. This is no time for saying I've won the argument and you've lost and all this kind of stuff. We need to let them come to the vaccine with as much grace um, and dignity as, as we allow them to have. So no gotchas, no whatever. It, in fact, more thank you for every one of them that silently takes the vaccine, and that will happen with the vaccine passport. We've seen it all over the world. People will choose life over this really you know, extreme position they've held. Um, but we, we have to be happy about that and just sort of be forward-looking and say, cool, this is the way we're all going to get to where we all want to be, you know, a world where we can all go out and, and all enjoy life the way um, we want to. And, and we know this is the path. You don't feel like it's the path. But we can't just sit around for another year and a half and let variants continue to grow while we try to convince you logically. This is the only way we can get you where we all need to be. I think you've kind of answered this, but I'm curious if you've seen evidence, and it is still pretty new here in BC, is whether or not it does work. When we're talking about the services, they're not essential, really, although, I mean, some people might consider sporting events or going out to dinner essential, but they're not keeping people out of, I mean, yeah. healthcare in those essential places. They're not even keeping people out of shopping malls or hair salons or nail salons or or 
fast food coffee shops and, and that. So is it enough to push the dial? Is it enough to actually uh, fulfill that to do what it's meant to do? I, well, so the, the data suggests yes, and, and psychology suggests yes. So in terms of the data, some of the early stuff we saw was, I believe France was the first one to do a mandatory passport, and, and they saw vaccine rates um, go up um, quite dramatically. I believe Quebec has seen um, that happening as well. Uh, but it's not at all surprising because although we kind of think of these as unnecessary kind of events, this is where we socially connect with people. This is where we enjoy our friends and, and deepen our relationships with those people we care about. Uh, and that is our kind of safety net for mental health, our social connections. That's why we've all felt so um, stressed all through this pandemic. And, and we all know how badly we just wanted to be able to do those simple, normal social kind of events. Um, so it was bad enough when it was all of us. But when you when you just have a segment that is not allowed to do this now while the rest can, now we have a lot of social equity issues that are that are deep within us. Franz Duval, a primatologist, shows um, videos of, of Capachan monkeys who, if you give one a, a cucumber to do some job and you give another one a grape, they prefer grapes, the one who's given the cucumber will throw the cucumber at the experimenter at some point, getting so frustrated that they're not treated the same as, as this other Capachan monkey. It is deeply rooted in our DNA, and, and when we feel like some of our fellow citizens are being allowed to do things we're not, it's not going to feel good. We're going to want those privileges as well, and, and it will be a very powerful emotional trigger. All right. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and talking about this on the program. Thank you. It was very interesting. I appreciate it. Well, if you've ever had an issue with your local council, you've likely perhaps signed up to speak at a council meeting. Maybe you've reached out to a city councillor. Maybe you've gone to a council meeting and had your piece. Maybe you've gone to a public hearing and done that. Things were a little different, have been a little different during the pandemic. But I think we can all agree that that is part of local governments, that they're accessible, that people can go, even if it's just to watch the meetings unfold. Well, at Surrey City Council, Council, a motion has passed that actually bans some residents from going to those council meetings. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about what exactly is happening in Surrey is Jack Hundile, who is a Surrey city councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, So what happened? This was something that happened at council. Uh, Surrey's mayor, Doug McCallum, uh, along with his slate of councillors, have passed this motion. What does it do? Well, it was kind of... uh it caught everyone off guard. Well, those of us that didn't know about it, certainly, that uh, the mayor introduced this motion um, right uh, in land use. And uh, normally the the process is you introduce a notice of motion, it gets um, posted, and then uh, you got two weeks to come back and debate about it before um, you get a vote on it. In this case, the mayor just dropped it. Um, I expected to myself, and I think uh, some of my council colleagues there, because uh, we've it's just an extraordinary uh, piece to say that you're going to actually limit people or bar people from coming to council meetings. Um, and then I raised my concerns on it last night, saying, look, what is the legality of this? And really, I myself personally don't feel comfortable in it uh, because there's really no explanation or context. We weren't provided with any uh, legal opinion on this. And when we asked for the legal opinion, um, uh, the city solicitor said, look, it's... Uh, Sister client privilege, which is even more confusing because we are the we are the clients um, asking for this. 
So it's really bizarre. Uh, it's probably the best way to put it, Joe. <laughs> and the reason given then, I understand that Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, put out a statement after to try and clarify this, saying that it applies to individuals who have repeatedly disrupted and verbally harassed council and city staff during public hearings. And I think it goes on to say uh, necessary to protect council and city staff from harassment. Yeah, so I'd actually like to give the examples uh, of what that actually is because I participated in, in these meetings and uh, certainly people do have strong opinions on some of the things that are going on in Surrey. Uh, I have strong opinions on it. Uh, you know, we debate vigorously at times, um, but at the end of the day, uh, this is the people's house. They're, this is their house to come and express themselves and how they feel about issues in local government. And um, I don't think it's fair to block the doors for people to, to come and do that. Um, I've tried to sort of research and find out are there any other similar examples and in other cases I'm able to find is usually it's attached with um, something that's uh, very maybe either violent or the person's been arrested and there's another external process, maybe a court process that barred someone from there. But um, to simply bar people from coming into city council to express their thoughts in opposition uh, really is not uh, what I feel is democratic. It was one of the reasons then, and when I when I look at the exact motion, it, it says to the point, whereas these named individuals in their disorderly conduct have repeatedly contravened Section 52.1 of the Council Procedure Bylaw, which requires comments to be relevant to the bylaw under consideration at a public hearing. That's the beginning of it. So is the argument mm-hmm. being made that we're dealing with, a, with members of the group that want to keep the RCMP in Surrey and they they are coming to council and talking about that when what's being discussed is a different topic? Um, it could be. Like, I, I didn't draft that motion, and I certainly don't stand be uh, stand behind it. Um, so you really have to talk to the mayor and, and sort of the thinking behind it, of, of what it actually means for them. Um, when we have people that do come for public hearing or other processes in the city where it is open, um, people do bring a whole host of issues, anything not only from policing, from public safety, but from, uh, you know, road maintenance to uh, procedures in the environment. All those other pieces are there as well. And, and part of being local government is to uh, listen to the public. Um, that's, a, that's the fundamental part of being in local government is that you listen to your residents. And when you stop listening, this is what happens, is uh, you get to people that uh, do get upset. So really, you know, the high road on this for me would be to, you know, build a bridge with these people, uh, reach out and hear what they have to say. Um, and I think part of this maybe was prompted by the uh, issue last week or the week before with the mayor having an altercation with members of this group at a signing for the uh, referendum. Right. And and I think people are familiar with with that story, although still not 100% clear on what unfolded. But talking about the incident in the parking lot where the signatures were being gathered and the mayor claims that one of the members of that group ran over his foot. Yeah, and I haven't seen any, any proof about that either. So, um, But I know it's still an ongoing investigation, so I'll, I'll leave that piece there. But uh, for, for residents to you know, to get this and to, and to name them publicly uh, out like this at a public meeting. And that was uh, one of the Chris, our issues that uh, Councillor Pettigrew brought up is that we're naming people that we don't want attending at meetings. And certainly I don't agree with that. And, I, you know, I know there's other councillors that did not agree with that at all, that, uh, you know, when you get elected, 
um, you have a responsibility to listen and hear everyone. And when we had a very controversial uh, uh, budget uh, debate back in 2019, uh, the end result of that was um, you had two groups in there that were very loud uh, debating on the budget as well. And the process then was to everybody um, leaves council chambers, uh, vacates it until things calm down, and let staff or bylaws or if they have to call the police, let them deal with it that way. That to me would be what is established and what should be done. What is it? What is your um, understanding then at this point? This motion passed that bans the seven people mm-hmm. that were named from attending. Uh, so what happens if they attempt to attend a council meeting in the future? But that's a good question, and for that I don't have an answer because it's such an extraordinary step. Uh, you know, you really wouldn't even know what the next step is. Um, and from what I understand, and certainly what I heard on the um, online today is that the group I think is pursuing some sort of um, civil remedy or um, defense in this. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that is. But uh, I've reached out to other colleagues uh, in municipalities uh, around Surrey and asked them, uh, have they have to do this? And uh, even they're a little bit surprised and shocked. Hmm. Because it does, like you said, when you're elected to that position, it's your job to listen to the people, the constituents, people that live in that city, the people that who maybe didn't vote for you, uh, but are still people in that area. Does it... I mean, I, I get that there's been disruptions. I know we've talked about in the past to people's microphones being cut off uh, during COVID when people weren't there mm-hmm. in person. Uh, but is is it not also, I mean, n- nobody should be harassed at work. People should be free of mm-hmm. harassment for sure. But being, uh, being a civic politician, I would imagine part of the job is also having a thick skin. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you get uh, emails from people, phone calls sometimes, or even out in public. Uh, people will challenge you. And it's up to you when you take on that responsibility of representing the entire community that there's going to be those that don't agree with that. And you need to have the level of maturity and understanding that we're allowed to have a difference of opinion in this country. And when I look and see the things, just what you mentioned about cutting people off on the phone because of COVID, they can't come in and now barring people. To me, that's just, uh, you know, the chair, in this case, the mayor, just losing control of the meeting. And um, you know, it's, it's really sad and it's disappointing to see that, what's happening for democracy in Syria. And I really wish uh, other levels of government would actually uh, look into this. Uh, And the issue has been raised with the minister previously uh, to actually say, look, you need to provide some oversight here on what's happening here in Syria. And it's not just this one issue of cutting people off or now naming them to be um, prevented from coming into council chambers. Uh, There's a whole host of other issues that I think do require an external uh, eye to start looking at this and, and look at the legality of this. Is it getting in the way of getting city business done? Um, well, obviously it is. I think, you know, when you have to allocate this much time and energy towards, uh, you know, the behavior of some people, but also the reaction to that behavior, it certainly takes away from very precious time when people do have some very legitimate issues that they come to council with um, that do impact them. Um, so to me, it, it uh, you know, th- there is an issue there. There is a problem there. Uh, but, you know, as a leader of a city, you have to have the maturity and understanding to listen to everyone and try to mitigate that. All right. We will leave it there for this afternoon. Councillor Hundal, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much.